would realize this, that in the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of God, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but they've denied its power thereof. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Our Father, you said that at the end of time, before your Son will come back from heaven, that we will meet perilous times, that it will be like the days of Noah that were days of sexual immorality and violence. And you also said that the coming of the Son of Man would be like the days of Lot, days of sexual perversion, homosexuality. How sad it is, Father, to see our nation, our world, being given over to an upside-down mind where men call evil good and good evil. But we thank you that you are a sovereign God, that you rule and reign in the heavens above, that nothing takes you by surprise. And Lord Jesus, you told us not to be fearful, for you said these things must happen. We intercede as a church for the families that are absolutely brokenhearted this morning, having lost just innocent life. We pray that you would bring comfort, and to those who have never met you in a saving way, may you use this tragedy to open their eyes up to the gospel, and may you use it in your church across this nation to remind us of how fragile life is and our responsibility to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. Father, thank you for those police officers, so many who are disrespected in our day. And yet when we're in danger, we want them so desperately. Thank you for those who are willing to protect us, Thank you for the few dozen police officers who are members of this fellowship. Guard each one, protect them. God, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that this book, the Bible, the only book you ever wrote, may we have ears to hear and eyes to see the truth that is here. May we walk in humility. May we tremble before your word. May you help me today to preach faithfully your word. Fill me and anoint me by your spirit. Help every person listening who's unsure that heaven is really their home. Speak to them today as only you are able and help those that know you 
to grow deeper. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his honor. Amen. Take God's word with you this morning, Revelation chapter 20, as we continue our verse-by-verse exposition of this great book. The Bible is clear that the next great event on God's prophetic calendar, it's called the rapture, when all the true believers of God are immediately in the twinkling of an eye. That's faster than you can blink your eye. All the true believers will be removed from the earth. And then what will begin to unfold is a time that is unparalleled in the history of man. And we've been studying that in Revelation chapters 6 through 18. Jesus said, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Now, Christ is never given to exaggeration. He is truth incarnate, and he said you can take all the wars, all the murders, all the holocausts, all the shootings, all the famines, all the diseases, all the earthquakes, all the tsunamis, and put them all together, and it doesn't even begin to match the time frame that is in front of us. Now, when we started back in Revelation 6, all the way until the second coming in chapter 19, we were given a vision from God's Word of unspeakable horror. But in the four messages I preached on chapter 19, we learned a day when everything is going to change upon the earth. And one of the truths that God's American church needs to hear is Bible prophecy. It is neglected in our day. People virtually every single week write me or tell me to say, my pastor never teaches on Bible prophecy. Listen, my friend, Bible prophecy is important. One-third of the Scriptures is prophetic, and if we are commanded to teach the whole counsel of Scripture, you cannot ignore it. And so John has been giving us a vision of what is going to happen in the future. God said through the prophet Isaiah, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. God wants you to know the future. He wants you to know it, not so that you will be scared, but that you might be prepared. And so that's why we're studying right now the Revelation. Now, last time we looked at just three verses, verses one through three. Today we're going to look at verses four through six. But let's get a running start into the context. Revelation 20, now beginning in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. 
but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, let me bring you into the context. I know this is a difficult chapter of Scripture. And some of you told me last week that the theology was so thick, they were still trying to sort it out. Well, this is the meat of the word. And at some point, we need to graduate from milk and move on to meat. And don't worry if you don't understand everything that I say. When I preach a sermon, it's like a math teacher teaching math. He has to teach numbers to some, addition to others, multiplication, algebra, geometry, trigonometry, calculus, but each segment of math builds on the next. So when I preach a sermon, I'm teaching some people who are brand new to the Bible their numbers, and there's something here for you if you're new to the Bible. And then there are some who have walked with Christ for decades, and there's something here for you as well. Now, being a Christian for decades doesn't automatically mean you're mature. There are a lot of Christians who stay baby Christians for decades. But the way you grow is you learn the Word of God. And I'm not here to share my opinion this morning, but I am here to preach God's Word. So let me bring you into the context. Christ is going to come back. First, He comes for the church. He catches us up into the air. But then at the second coming, after he's come for his saints, he will come back with his saints. He will come to the earth. And when he comes to the earth, the Bible teaches God will remove every unbeliever from the planet, and he will begin to rule for a thousand years. But before Christ can set up his kingdom, he has to deal with the devil. And so if you were here last time, we discussed a prophetic section in the first three verses. Let's look at verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. Now, please notice the familiar phrase, then I saw. Look up here. Don't be distracted. Then I saw. It's an introductory phrase reminding you that we're coming into a new section. Now, if you're using the New American Standard 1971 edition, it says, and I saw, as does the King James and the New King James. It's a little three-letter word, chi, in Greek, and it can be translated and or then or when. It's a chronology word, and it's an important word. But interestingly, in the start of every single verse in this chapter, the first word is chi, with the exception of verses 5 and 6 that are connected to verse 4. And that's important because both the language and the context is giving us a chronology of one event after the other. And so it's only logical as at the end of chapter 19, the beast called the Antichrist and his false prophet have been judged. Now it's Satan's turn. Look again at verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Now, I find it interesting here in verse 1 that God uses an angel to deal with the devil, an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. Now, God the Father or God the Son or God the Spirit could have just spoken the devil into the abyss, but they choose not to. They choose to use an angel to remind the reader that Satan is not God's equal. Just a regular angel of God can deal with this fallen angel. Listen, sometimes you infuse into your thinking too much power into the evil one, like he's omniscient, like he's all-powerful. He's created. And so the Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 
The he, the first he in that verse is God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. We often speak of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The New Testament actually teaches we're indwelt by each member of the Godhead. Greater is God who is in you than he that is in the world. Satan is not God's equal. And the truth is, is that God could easily stop Satan's activity at any time. But God in his sovereignty is using him to fulfill his sovereign purposes. God is never the author of sin, but he can use sin in a sinless way. And that's what we will see happen in this chapter as we work through it. The devil's career is spelled out in the Revelation. And we're going to see him bound, but then released. Again, then I saw an angel. So having disposed of the false prophet and the Antichrist and all of the Gentile armies of the world, there at the battle of Armageddon, that's chapter 19, this angel with a key to the abyss steps in. And the scripture says, uh, as this next slide will show us, that there are six, career, six stages to the career of Satan. And we've been studying these six stages to Satan's career as we've been working through the Revelation. We haven't gotten to all of them yet, but we will by the time we're finished. In stage one, Satan is created as the anointed cherub. He is the anointed angel of God. The devil is a created person. Again, he is created. The devil didn't always exist. People sometimes ask me, where did the devil come from? And why do we have a devil? And why did God create him to begin with? Well, remember, when God created the devil, he did not create him as the devil. Everything that God does is good and holy. He created him as Lucifer. Now, Lucifer has kind of a spooky evil ring to it in most people's theology, but that's actually his holy name. That was his name before he fell. You can translate the meaning of the name as in some translations, the star of the morning. That's what the word Lucifer means. And so when Ezekiel describes Satan before he fell as Lucifer, he says he was perfect in beauty. He was full of wisdom that he was the anointed cherub. He was not God's prime minister of evil. He was God's holy angels that led the angels of God in worship. Then we studied stage two, if you remember, of Satan's career, where Lucifer becomes Satan, where he rebelled against God and took with him one-third of all the angels. We read of this in Revelation 20, 12 and verse 4. His tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Again, he's created. He's not God's co-equal. But when Satan rebelled, he took one-third of all the angels. You say that's a lot. Just remember, there's two-thirds that are still holy. So there's more holy angels than there are fallen angels. But don't ever get the idea that there's some kind of dualism in the universe. That's the pantheism of Star Wars. That's not biblical theology. Don't think that from everlasting to everlasting, there's been this evil force at work in the universe. The Bible does not teach that. Satan was created as Lucifer, the son of the morning, 
but he became the evil one when he rebelled against God. And God who spoke him into existence, we will see before we're done with this chapter, will speak him into oblivion. But in stage two, a third of the angels rebelled against Satan, with, with Satan against God, and they have access this morning to the heavenly realm, at least most of them, but they have no permanent resident there. Jesus spoke of stage two when he said, I saw, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Satan one day thought he was too wise, too wonderful, too mighty for God, and he wanted to be like God. And so five times over in Isaiah 14, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, he rebelled against God Almighty. But he still has limited access into the heavenly realm. And so Satan, you see him with some of his fallen imps go into the presence of God and they rag on Job and they want to toy with his life. He has access, but no further residency. Then the third stage of his evil work, where during the seven-year period called the Great Tribulation, Satan will literally be cast out of the realm of the heavenlies to the physical earth forever until God deals with him. Let me read to you what we studied in the 12th chapter. There's an angelic war that takes place in heaven. In Revelation 12 and verse 8, and they, referring to Satan and his demons, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down there with him. His career is now on the planet, and it's almost over. The next verse says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. Revelation 12.10 says that we're being accused of God in heaven. We just sang that, but we have one who intercedes on our behalf. Maybe this morning as I speak... The evil one is railing before the throne of God saying, did you see so-and-so? Did you hear what they said? Did you see what they did? But a time will come when he'll have no access and the father will say, Michael, this is it for Satan. Take him and all of his fallen demons out of heaven and he will be forever banished and that will bring us to stage three, where again, he's cast out of the heavenlies to the earth. He will no longer be properly called then the prince of the power of the air. And when he's on the earth with all of his fallen evil demons, the world will experience two doses of wrath, the wrath of the lamb that Revelation 6 spells out, but also the wrath of Satan. And I want to tell you, at the end of that seven-year period, it will bring us to stage four, Bring it up, if you will. He'll be restricted in the abyss for a thousand years, and we'll study next time why that is so important and why God would lock the devil up for a thousand years. It becomes very critical. Then stage five, if you'll bring it up, Satan's release at the end of the thousand years, and we'll see why his release is so important. And then stage six, where Satan is then cast for the first time ever into hell. So here is this fallen evil person who has a career from the anointed cherub in the end to hell. 
And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, that's where you'll be in the end. Now, if you die and go to hell, you'll be trespassing because God didn't create hell for humans. Jesus said he created hell for the devil and his angels. And God doesn't want you to go there. And so in Revelation 12, 12, for this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. That's phase stage three. A short time, three and a half years, literally, actually, on the earth, all right? Then look at verse 2 in our chapter this morning. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. There's a few dozen names given for the evil one in Scripture. He's called the dragon here because he seeks someone to devour. He's called a serpent because he seeks someone to deceive. He's called the devil because he's a defamer. But he's also called Satan, Satanas. It means adversary. He wants to defeat you today. But one day, he's going to get what is coming to him, praise the Lord, and he'll be bound for a thousand years. So this angel descends from heaven, and he takes hold of Satan. It's a word that's used outside of the Bible of a master who takes hold of his slave. He has authority over him. Satan does not have any kind of absolute power or authority. He is under the hand of a sovereign, omnipotent God. Verse 3, and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So when you think of fallen angels in the Bible, there are four categories, as this chart reminds us this morning. One category, the first one there, are those who wage war in the heavenly realms. So Paul says, we wage war not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. Daniel, the 10th chapter, you see these fallen, evil angels, even over countries. There's probably angels even over the state of South Carolina. Then there's a second class of angels that are in a place called Tartarus. Tartarus is translated in 2 Peter 2.4 as hell, but it's a specific compartment of hell. Unlike those angels in the abyss who are going to be released someday, these angels are in eternal chains. They did something that was so heinous and so wicked that they are in eternal chains, those two verses say. I preached a whole sermon on it. You can listen to it in Genesis 6. The B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, referring to angels, one of the terms and titles given for them, they cohabitated with the daughters of men. Angelic beings had a physical relationship with women. And so you see even the men of Sodom wanting to have a physical relationship with two angels that God sends down. Angels always appear as males in Scripture. But what they did was so heinous and so wicked, they left their proper abode. They violated the way God created them. And then, of course, he compares it in the next verse to homosexuality. Don't ever say that you were created a homosexual. The Scripture does not teach that. If you were created that way, God could not make it a moral dictate. God says, don't be deceived, neither drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, nor homosexuals, 
will inherit the kingdom of God. The next verse says, but such were some of you. God can save and deliver anyone and change anyone. And I don't need some therapy for it to happen. I need a birth from above. And when you're born again, God can make everything new. A third group are those who are in the abyss. Remember when Jesus went to a place called Gadara. Some of you have been there with me in Israel. It's what we call a class A spot. There's no question it happened right here. It's the only place in the Sea of Galilee where it could have happened. You see the actual tombs. And you see the hill, and there's only one hill that goes all the way straight down into the Sea of Galilee. Now, today, it's cut at the bottom of the road, but it's the only place geographically that fits the accounts. And he meets these two demon-possessed men, and they're possessed by legion, some 2,000 demons. And they plead with the Lord Jesus, please don't send us into the abyss. Why don't they want to go into the abyss? Because when you're a demon in the abyss, you have no power to taunt and to wage war against men. So he sends them in his sovereign decision into the pigs, and they're drowned there, of course, in the Sea of Galilee. Someday the abyss, Revelation 9, is going to be opened. Then the final end of all angels, Revelation 20, we'll study it. Matthew 25 is the lake of fire. So contrary to popular belief, Satan is not in hell this morning. Satan has never been in hell. But he's going to be in hell at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. But what I find interesting is that during the thousand years, he'll be in the abyss. And the abyss is a temporary place for demons, just like Hades is a temporary place for an unbeliever. If you're saved, absent from the body, present with the Lord. If you're lost and you die today, absent from the body, not present in hell, but present in Hades... And Hades is a place of torment and fire, as Jesus described it in Luke 16. But Hades ultimately is cast into the lake of fire. It's a temporary place of judgment, and we will see why when we come later to this chapter, why both places are temporary, and God allows them in this temporary place, both demons and humans, one in Tartarus, the other in the abyss, or one in the apse, uh, one, <laughs> one in the abyss and one in, in, in Hades, why he allows them this temporary place, because there's a final judgment. We'll, we'll come to that. I'm getting ahead of myself. So he threw him into the abyss. He shot it. He sealed it. And the scripture says he's there for a thousand years. Then he's released for a short time. A thousand years. Jesus is going to rule and reign on the earth for 1,000 years. Now, when you read rabbis that wrote even during the Old Testament era and the intertestament period, and even modern day rabbis, some will say, well, Messiah's reign is going to be for 40 years. You see, the idea of a kingdom on the earth is not a New Testament concept. There are entire chapters and large sections of the Old Testament that speak of Messiah's kingdom, where he will rule on the earth. So some say it's 40 years. Some said it was 400 years. Some said it was 70 years. Some said it was 6,000 years. They don't know. They're just speculating. But they don't have the New Testament. We do. And the Bible teaches that Christ's reign on the earth will be for literally a thousand years. A thousand years. Now, there's a term you need to know. It's called millennium. Millennium. There's a lot of terms that we use in Christianity that come from Latin, like the word trinity, found nowhere in the Bible. 
But the concept that God is one who exists in three eternal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, is a New Testament term. And so from Latin, we get the term Trinity, and we get many terms from Latin that we use in modern-day Christianity, because for 1,000 years, that's the only translation the church had, Mille. Latin for a thousand, annum, you get an annual yearbook, a thousand year reign upon the earth. Now, there's a group of people, they're called amillennialists. Alpha, like in English, A, it neutralizes it. So they say there is amillennial, no millennial reign. And so when they come to the book of Revelation, they spiritualize it. They allegorize it. They say, with the exception of the second coming of Christ, all of Revelation has already been fulfilled before 70 A.D. Well, you really have to spiritualize a lot. And the reason they say this is because they teach what's called replacement theology, another important term. Replacement theology, it's also called supersessionism. And replacement theology, in a nutshell, says because Israel, the Jewish people, were disobedient, that God has replaced Israel with the church, that the promises that God made to Israel for a literal kingdom on the earth have now been neutralized, and the church is the new Israel. It's called replacement theology. Now, when you read the ancient church fathers... Those are the people who lived immediately after the apostles, and there's early and late church fathers. The early church fathers all wrote unanimously that when Christ comes back a second time, he will rule and reign on the earth for 1,000 years. Augustine popularized amillennialism. Roman Catholicism came out of much of Augustine's theology. And some Protestant reformers who got saved out of Catholicism, like Calvin and Luther, they nonetheless espoused replacement theology. So I read some quotes by popes. I read quotes by Calvin and Luther that are absolutely despicable, about as anti-Semitic as you can get. Now, there are apostate churches, and apostate, the Greek word apostasia means to fall away. And God says in 1 Timothy 4.1 that at the end of time, people will fall away from the faith. That is the body of truth we call the Bible. And apostasy is growing at rapid rates here in America. So there's one apostate denomination, though there are believers within it. It's called the PCUSA, Presbyterian Church, United States of America. Not to be confused with some of the conservative Bible-believing Presbyterians. But most of the Bible-believing Presbyterians, when you could get ordained in the PCUSA and not even believe in the deity of Christ, they left. So the PCUSA, as you know, they espouse and affirm gay marriages, as some of the PCUSA churches in our own town do. Very sad. Well, last year, their annual meeting, these people endorsed what's called the BDS movement, boycott, divest, and sanction. It's a form of anti-Semitism. I don't know how else to say it. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to be true. They say that the United States government and Christians, as they define the term, should boycott, divest, and sanction 
against the Israeli people. In fact, they just came out two months ago saying that REMAX International should end the sale or rental of properties to Jewish people because in, the, in certain sections of Israel because they say that they are illegally occupying the land. The fact is there are now 10 major denominations in the United States that espouse the BDS movement. Presbyterian Church USA, the Alliance of Baptists, Southern Baptists are not in that group, but it's a group of liberal, liberally-minded, theologically-rooted Baptists, the Church of the United Brethren in Christ, the Religious Society of Friends, we know them better as Quakers, the Mennonite Church USA, the Roman Catholic Church, the Unitarian Universalist Church, we've got some of those in our county, the United Church of Christ, we have some of those, United Methodist Church, we've got a bunch of those. And then the World Communion of Reformed Churches, as they call themselves, not to be confused with our Reformed born-again Christians, they have 232-member churches on six continents across the world. These groups represent people who are coming against Israel. Now, does that surprise me? No, it doesn't surprise me because the Bible teaches at the end of time the whole world is going to come against Israel. We studied it in Revelation 16. Let me read to you Revelation 16 and verse 14. At the battle of Armageddon, we're told, the kings of the whole world, and if you're using the New American Standard, you have a literal rendering out in the margin, the kings of the whole inhabited earth, all the world, that would include America at that time. The only reason America right now is pro-Israel is because of evangelicals who are behind Israel. But the whole world, the Scripture teaches, will gather them together for the war of the great day of God their Almighty. They're all going to come against Israel. Jewish people from across the world are going back to Israel. It's a prophecy being fulfilled. It's a reminder to me that we're living at the end of the age. Why? Because God said in the Old Testament, at the end of time, before Christ comes back a second time, He'll gather the Jewish people across the planet. They were removed from their land twice. There's never been a people in the history of the world and the 6,000 years of recorded history that we have that were ever thrown out of their land and came back. But the Jews were thrown out of their land and for 70 years as God prophesied, but then he brought them back. But then a second time after the Babylonian captivity, they were brought back. In 70 AD, God said he would scatter them again across the planet. But at the end of time, he would bring the Jewish people back into the land. We are witnessing that in our day. But God also teaches that at the end of time, the peoples of this world will come against the Jew. And you ask a lot of Jews today, why are you in Israel? Because we're persecuted in the nation we live in. There's a growing spirit of anti-Semitism that is being fed by these apostate Christians. And we try to win Jewish people, and they say, well, you Christians are against us. And I try to explain to them, those aren't real Christians. Those are fake Christians. Those are people who call themselves Christians, but they use the same word with a different dictionary. They're not defined as Christian as found in the New Testament. Now, if you remember at the ascension of Christ, he stood on the Mount of Olives, 
and he's getting ready to ascend into heaven, and he tells those that are gathered, do not, do not, do not go out and speak to the first person about me until you receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. He did not want them to go out in their own power and strength to preach the gospel. And of course, he's speaking all about the Holy Spirit and this new work that John baptized you with water, but not many days from now, you're going to be baptized by the Spirit. And these men are thinking, now, wait a minute. The Old Testament passages speak of this movement of the Spirit of God when Messiah comes to establish his kingdom. And these guys are sharp spiritually. People make fun of guys like Peter. They're the ones who are ignorant, not Peter. Peter was an astute man of God. And so they asked the question when he talks about the Spirit. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, if there was ever a time for Jesus to say, Israel, I'm done with her. There will be no kingdom for Israel, as my amillennials friends say. And these would be guys like R.C. Sproul and Alistair Begg and John Piper. And there's some good men. I love these guys. But they think there's no future for Israel. There is a future. And if there was ever a time for Jesus to say, no, I'm done with Israel. But he says to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. He gently rebukes them, not for their expectation of a coming kingdom for Israel, but with their preoccupation with times and epochs, because there's another priority they have. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, and even to the remotest part of the earth. I've got something else for you to do. By the way, you know, there's a lot of things that we do even this morning and throughout the week that we will do in heaven. We'll study the scriptures, we'll sing, we'll pray, but there's one thing we will not do in heaven. There'll be no outreach programs, no missionaries, no one trying to win someone to Christ. Witnessing will not carry over into eternity. So back here in verse 3, he threw them into the abyss, he shot it, sealed it, so that he could not deceive the nations any longer. I mean, this is an event. Now, if you were here, that's just by way of review. That was a prophecy concerning Satan. And we studied in great detail, and if you weren't here for it, it would be helpful, especially as we go through the rest of the chapter and into chapter 21, to listen to that message, because it's given you the foundation that you need I've just touched on some of the highlights. Get the Search the Scriptures app at the App Store and listen to the sermon. But there were three dimensions to that prophecy concerning Satan. The period of time in which he would be bound. Secondly, the place in which he would be bound. And then third, the purpose for which he would be bound. That is, that he would be unable to deceive the nations for a thousand years. Now we come to verses four through six, and it's a prophecy concerning the saints. And once again, there's three aspects to this prophecy that God would have us to take away this morning. Number one, there on your note-taking outline. First, the saints and their crowning. In verse 4, he describes the saints and their crowning. Then I saw thrones, and they, circle the word they in your Bible, they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. 
Now again, who are these people sitting on thrones for a thousand years? Again, the amillennialists who has to allegorize Scripture, they come up with all kinds of meanings to prophecy because they don't know what it says and they make up things. They say, well, this must be angels. It's not angels. Hebrews 2 verse 5 says, for he did not subject to angels the world to come. That is to say, angels are not given authority to judge the world in the future world. So who are these they? Well, it's an expanded they from other Scripture. I'm going to tell you specifically as it relates to this verse, but there's two other categories put out in the margin next to verse uh, 4. First, Matthew 19 and verse 28. Matthew 19 and verse 28. Jesus made a promise to the 12 apostles. Let me read it to you. Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, he's talking to the 12 apostles, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus promised the 12 apostles during the regeneration. The regeneration is the thousand-year reign on Christ. And, and just like when you're saved, you are regenerated by the Spirit, the world is going to be regenerated for a thousand years. Even the planet itself will be different. Men will live for a thousand years. The lion will lay down with the wolf. The baby will play next to the cobra's nest and not be harmed. And during the regeneration, the apostles are going to have a unique, special role of leadership. But not just them. You and I will. Do you remember when we studied the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3? He spoke to the church at Thyatira in chapter 2. Jot down this verse. Revelation 2, Revelation 2, 26 and 27. Let me read it to you. Jesus said, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He's writing to a church where they too are going to have authority over the nations. Here are the Gentile nations of the world. Now understand, he who overcomes. Let me just say parenthetically while we're here, you're not saved by overcoming. You're not saved by your perseverance. Yet Jesus can say he who perseveres to the end will be saved. And here he can say, he overcomes, describing true believers, they're going to rule with him during this thousand-year reign. If you are born again, you will overcome, you will persevere. And so the press, as many of you know, has had a field day in the last two weeks. It's been on Fox, CNN, Drudge Report, all these major news networks of this Christian leader who apostatized from the faith. After, of course, he made several million dollars selling his books to us. But I warned people a decade ago not to go to that church because he was not qualified to be a pastor. And now he has totally renounced the faith of the Lord Jesus. He was not an overcomer. You say he lost his salvation. You cannot lose something that's eternal. He that believes has eternal life. The Bible would say he was never saved, for if he had been of us, he would have remained with us. But the fact that he went out from us shows that he was never really of us. 1 John 2.19, if you have it, you can't lose it. If you, quote, unquote, lost it, you never had it to begin with. But Jesus is speaking to those who persevere, 
who are born again, who are overcomers, that they will rule and reign with him. So then he will say in the next verse, Revelation 2, 27, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father. Now, that's an interesting verse because as you see the change of typeset, you know it's an Old Testament quotation, and it comes from Psalm 2, and it's a promise the Father makes to God the Son. Yet Jesus takes that promise, and he applies it to the church at Thyatira, and by extension, every born-again Christian. Why? Because we're going to rule with him. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. Or Revelation 5, verse 10, we studied it. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Or here in Revelation 20 and verse 4, and they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. It can't be angels, but the amillennialist, he just has to twist and turn and butcher Scripture. Paul said this concerning angels. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? If you know the passage, the Corinthians were carnal and out of fellowship. And some of the Corinthians were taking their brothers to court and suing them. And Paul says that is a rotten testimony bringing a fellow believer before a pagan judge into a court of law. He said, don't you know someday you're going to judge angels? If you're going to judge angels, then there must be someone amongst you who can solve the disputes between two people. So here's a chart of the events that are happening. Let me give you a visual. Right now, Christ is building his church. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. Christ spoke of it in a futuristic way. I will build my church in Matthew 16. Right now, he's building the church. The next event, the first era, is called the rapture. The word rapto or rapture, the verb, means to be caught up in the Latin translation of the Bible. It's the catching up of the church. Every Christian believes in the rapture. Some say, oh, the rapture is not found in the Bible. Neither is the word trinity. The next event is we are caught up, a seven-year period that is very dark. You think these are dark days. You haven't seen anything yet. You can take the evil that is beginning to spread across this planet, and you can multiply it 10,000 times 10,000 times, and you have this seven-year period. At the end of the seven years, Jesus will come back to the earth. First, he comes for his saints. We meet the Lord in the air. Then he comes back with his saints. His feet are planted on the Mount of Olives. He keeps the promises he made of a coming kingdom. He will rule and reign for a thousand years. During that thousand years, Satan is bound. And then the final resurrection takes place where all the lost are brought before God and the eternal state begins. We're coming to that. But look right now on the dark period, this seven-year period. While this seven-year period is unfolding on earth, the church has been taken into heaven. And what takes place while we're in heaven is called the judgment seat of Christ. The apostle Paul said, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We, he includes himself as a believer, so that each one may be recompensed for the deeds in his body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. There's a judgment for Christians. 
It's not to see if you get into heaven. Listen, the last breath you take on earth, it's a done deal. You are either in heaven or in hell. And you cannot change that, Jesus said. It is a fixed time frame forever. This is a judgment that takes place in heaven, and it concerns believers. You are saved not by works, but by grace. But once you are saved by the grace of God, God will sometime examine your life, and he will evaluate how you lived as a born-again Christian, and he will reward you accordingly. Do you remember um, Romans 14, 12? So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Once you're saved, you can't be unsaved. Once you are born physically, you can't be unborn physically. Once you are born again spiritually, you can't be unborn spiritually. This is a judgment of your service for Jesus Christ. Jesus told a parable and he said to them, well done, good slave. Because you've been faithful in a very little thing, you will be in authority over 10 cities. Do you remember how he introduced that parable? Let me read it to you. It's not a slide. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. Now, if you know the parable, Jesus is the master. He has gone for a period of time, but he's coming back. And he's going to have his people be evaluated. And so he said to two of the faithful believing slaves, to one well done good slave, because you've been faithful in a very little thing, you will be in authority over 10 cities. The second came up to Jesus, and he said, your mind of master has made five miners. He said to him, and you are to be over five cities. But then if you remember the parable, there was the unfaithful, unbelieving, lost man who thought that because his master was so mighty that he didn't need, the master didn't need any of his help. Well, the issue is not that the master needs his help. We need to help him. We need to be a part of his work. And so he's, he's focusing on saved people to encourage us to be a part of the coming kingdom. Listen, there's coming a day when God's going to look at your faithfulness. You can come and have a very casual relationship with the Lord. And I know some people come and they say the sermons are too long. Yeah, I want to weed it out. I want to find out who's serious. I'm not here to give you sermonettes. Sermonettes are for Christianettes. I preach an hour, sometimes longer, <laughs> but usually an hour. And, and I don't drag you back on Sunday night for another sermon. And if you're serious, you should have a heart to hear the Word of God because the Word of God is going to shape your life. And in the end, it's not how famous you are or how much fortune you've amassed. In the end, it's an issue of faithfulness. You see, we measure people, oh, he's, he's a big shot, you know. Everybody knows him. Look at all the stuff he's got. Two houses, boats, everything. It's not an issue of fame or fortune. It's an issue of faithfulness. And there will be people in the kingdom of God whose name you have never, ever, ever heard who will receive some of the greatest rewards 
For Jesus said the first will be last and the last will be first. So what I'm wanting you to see is there's a coming kingdom and God is going to evaluate his people and he is going to reward them accordingly. Look again in your text, verse four. I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given to them. So who's the they? Well, from other texts, we know the apostles. From other texts, we know the body of Christ. But in this passage, the they are tribulation saints. Let's keep reading. I saw the souls of those who've been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast, the antichrist, or his image and had not received the mark, the 666 on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Who are these people? These are people who are saved after the rapture of the church. People who have never heard the gospel before. And men and women and boys and girls will have a choice to make. You either follow Jesus or you follow Antichrist. And those who follow the one world leader, they'll receive his mark 666, of which you will be able to buy or sell nothing without it. But those who choose not to follow the Antichrist, most of them, the text says, are beheaded. They have been beheaded. Now, this group is going to reign with Christ, and we will too, as will the apostles. But there's another group who will not reign. Look at verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. The only people who are going to reign with Jesus are those people who are a part of the first resurrection. And the Bible is clear that included in the first resurrection are Old Testament saints, church saints, tribulation saints. In fact, again, let me give you a chart. Here's a chart of amillennialism. They say right now we're in the church age. Jesus, he's not going to literally reign on the earth. He's just reigning from heaven. Well, he is reigning from heaven. God is sovereign. But that doesn't dismiss or extinguish his literal reign on the earth. Tribulation, not a literal seven years. It's just, you know, there's heartache in life. Of course there is, but that's not the tribulation period. And then they say in the end, all of the lost, all of the saved will all be brought together, one big judgment, and then we'll enter into eternity. Well, that is sad, but that's not the picture God gives us. Let's talk about the first resurrection. Here is a chart that will help you to see it clearly. Who's included in the first resurrection? In stage one, it was first the Lord Jesus, Matthew 27. He was the first fruits. He was the first one to come out of the grave. Now, there were other people who were raised to life in the Bible only to die again, like Lazarus and Elijah and Elisha and raised some folks. But the first one ever to come out of the grave in a resurrection body was Jesus. And then there's that often overlooked verse. Let me read it to you. The tombs were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep or died were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Can you imagine? Jesus comes out of the grave, and after his resurrection, there's a number, select number of Old Testament saints who come out of the grave. Imagine meeting them in Jerusalem, walking around, yeah, I'm Abraham, or whatever. I don't know who they were, but a select number. And that's exactly in fitting with the typology of first fruits in the Old Testament. They're in the first resurrection. Stage two of the first resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 4, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise 
first, and those of us who remain shall be caught up. The dead come out of the grave. Jesus brings back from heaven departed spirits, reunites them with the body in the grave. The first to come out are those who've been buried, and those of us who are alive, we meet them in the air. That's stage two, all part of the first resurrection. He's not done yet. There's a third phase to it. Bring it up, would you? Phase three is the Old Testament believers and the tribulation saints who are raised. There are certain Old Testament believers that God will bring out of the grave. Let me read to you from Daniel chapter 12. Now, at that time, Michael, you know him, the archangel, the great prince who stands over the sons of your people will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. He's describing two types of people who lived in the Old Testament era, those who were saved, those who were lost, two kinds of resurrections. Jesus said it this way, do not marvel at this, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Those who came forth will come forth. Those who did the good or the good deeds, you could say, proving they were born again to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil or evil deeds, you could say, to a resurrection of judgment. Two kinds of resurrections a resurrection of everlasting life, and a resurrection of everlasting contempt. And both will need resurrection bodies. You need a body to walk on streets of gold, and they will need a body to live in hell that is never extinguished. Now, the schematic is given here in the Revelation. It is unfolding for us. And so we're going to learn later in this chapter that just as there's a second death, the first death is when if, if you drop dead in that pew today... That's your first death. But if you don't know Jesus is your Savior, you're going to experience the second death. Well, even so, there's the first resurrection, and there's the second resurrection. You want to be a part of the first resurrection because the only people who are included in the first resurrection are believers. And he's describing them here. They came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Just like in the first death, not everybody dies at once, but they've been dying for 6,000 years. Even so, in the first resurrection, not everyone will be raised at the same time. There's a series of resurrections that are all part of the first resurrection program. And so, God separates the two by a thousand years. He says, and this is important, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So, think your way through this. There's these who are going to rule with Christ, the apostles, church saints, Tribulation saints, Old Testament saints. And in the first resurrection are those same four groups of people. Now, that's the saints in their cranium. Actually, almost done. Secondly, the saints in their character. The saints in their character. Verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. This is the fifth of seven beatitudes. Blessed, it means satisfied, joyful. Not the way Joel Olstein speaks of being blessed, a false prophet with a prosperity theology. I mean, think about these people. How are they blessed? They had their heads cut off. 
They're blessed because they are a part of God's kingdom. They've been saved by grace. It reminds me of the 70 who are sent out. And the 70 return, the Bible says in Luke 10, 17, with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And you would be filled with joy too if you saw the demonic realm responding to your commands. But Jesus wants them to keep blessing in perspective. Listen, he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. And then he adds, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Jesus was not saying that you cannot receive a sense of joy from ministry. You can. When you obey him, your heart is filled with joy. But he wants us to know that our joy in the biggest realm needs to come from our salvation. He's not censoring joy. He's just subordinating it to the fact that if you've been saved, your name is in God's book. When was the last time you had a heart filled with joy because you were saved? That's what he's talking about. He's saying the highest worth, the highest joy, the angels shout for joy when someone is saved. He's describing being blessed. These people are blessed. They're deeply satisfied. But notice also blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Not only are these people blessed, they are holy. Now, holiness in the Bible comes on two levels. Imputed holiness, what we call justification, and practical holiness, what we call sanctification. The day you are saved, God credits your account with Christ's righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. When you receive Jesus as your Savior, he not only wipes the slate clean, he credits you with Christ's righteousness. But then there is practical holiness in the New Testament. Listen to this verse, Hebrews 12. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see God. Pursue peace. The word verb pursue is shared by two objects, peace and sanctification. Some of your translations say pursue the holiness. And then he adds the caveat, without which no one will see God. He's talking now about practical holiness. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now understand, he's not teaching salvation by works. You are saved totally by the finished work of Christ. But when you put your full confidence in the death, burial, and resurrection, you are born from above. And Jesus said, unless you are born twice, you'll never enter heaven. And then you get a new spiritual DNA where your life changes. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away and all things have become new. And listen, there's a lot of people who call themselves born-again Christians, and they know the plan of salvation, but last night they were sleeping with people they weren't married to, they were out in the bars and all that nonsense, and that's not an occasional mishap, that is a lifestyle, and what does it tell me? They've never met the living God. Pursue holiness. 
And when you're imputed with Christ's righteousness, only then can the Spirit of God come live inside of you. And when he comes inside of you, he makes you a new person and he changes everything. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Then finally, beyond their crowning, beyond their character, the saints and their confidence. Let's read all of verse 6. The saints and their confidence. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, the second death is mentioned on multiple occasions in the Revelation. Your first death is when your body expires. We call it physical death. The second death is when your body expires and you're lost. And you go to a place the Bible calls hell. We've already read in Revelation 2.11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, showing they're born again, will not be hurt by the second death. Look, if the second death can hurt you, I don't want any part of it. I don't know about you. But then he says in uh, verse 14, we're going to come to it in this chapter, the 20th chapter, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. You die physically lost and you get the second death. He further describes it in Revelation 21.8. We're several weeks away from that. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It's well been said, the saying is true, if you're born only once, you will die twice. First physically, then spiritually. He is writing about this because remember during this seven-year period, there's going to be multitude millions who are going to be opening the Bible. And they're going to be pouring over these pages. And some are going to find the Lord. But Christians have been reading this for 2,000 years because it should be a motivation to us to preach the gospel in the day that we live in. But listen, if you're born only once, you'll die twice, first physically, then spiritually. But if you're born twice, and you must be born again if you're going to see the inside of heaven, if you're born twice, you'll only die once. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and then you'll be a part of the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Imagine this. Jesus is coming back for a thousand years. Imagine a world where all of the believers from the day of Pentecost to the rapture of the church will be together. Imagine a world where for a thousand years all of those brave tribulation saints will be there too. Imagine a world where you're walking down the street and you meet Adam and Abraham and Moses and and Noah and Samuel and all these great Old Testament saints. A world where there's peace and harmony and no murders because Jesus will rule with a rod of iron and will see some people who are going to be included in that kingdom who are going to be born during the thousand-year reign. It's going to be a great world, and what is going to happen next is absolutely incredible, but we'll have to wait till next time for that. So let's talk about three applications as we close. Number one, what do I learn from this passage of Scripture? These truths should make me more passionate in my witness. I mean, if this biblical truth really grips our hearts, 
It should not stay our lips, but should open our mouths. I mean, when you see and watch all the petty little endeavors that lost people are giving their whole life to, knowing that they're headed for an eternity without the Lord, would you not want to be compassionate and kind and tell them how they can not only have a place in heaven, but find meaning in life now? Because that's what they're looking for. Some people try to get it through fame or fortune, or, but it's only the living God who's going to satisfy the inner depths of your heart. And if God's heart is that none should perish, then that ought to be our heart. Secondly, I learned that these truths should increase my gratitude for God's grace. Not only should it make me more passionate in my witness, it should increase my gratitude for the grace of God. I mean, I'm reading this morning about a first resurrection, and I'm going to be a part of it, not because I deserve it. The only thing I deserve is wrath. And if God had never sent his son, I would have gotten what I deserved. But if you know Christ is your Savior, he's going to give you something you don't deserve. And that ought to increase your appreciation because that's an expression of grace. Third and finally, these truths should make me flee to Jesus for salvation. Look, if you're here today and you don't know if you're born again, usually means you're not. You know you're married? I don't know. I'm married. I think I'm married. When you're born again, you know it. The Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you've become a child of God. There are four principal reasons in the Bible people don't get saved. Some hate God. They hate Christ. They hate the Bible. They hate everything I stand for. And I get some letters. They hate some of you. And maybe there's, I doubt anyone like that here today unless you just stumbled on our broadcast. But there's a second category of people who can read a chapter like this and never get saved. And that's people who think they're too good to be saved. They think the message I preach is for the prostitute, the pimp, the drug addict, the adulterer, the thief, the murderer, but it's not for them. And what they don't understand is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point has become guilty of all. That God is so absolutely holy, a violation of one commandment is enough to keep you out of heaven. Now, there's a third category of people who will never get saved, and they think they're too bad to be saved. I've had people tell me that. You don't know what I've done, Pastor. I think I'm too bad to be saved. Whosoever will may come. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But I'll tell you, there's a fourth category of people who get saved. And in my humble opinion, it's the largest category. And they will be damned by the millions. And it's the procrastinator. People who say, I'm not against the Bible. I'm not against Jesus. I know I need to be saved, just not today. Maybe later, but not today. And it's damned millions and millions of people. You can't come to Jesus whenever you want because God stirs your heart and he'll not strive with you forever. Now, I want to tell you, 
Don't leave here thinking that you're saved by being a good person. The Bible says if you could be saved by being good, Jesus died for no reason. He died on a cross because you cannot save yourself. He didn't die for most of your sin. He died for all of it. And if you will admit it's sin and own it, that it needs forgiveness and change, and believe that only the gospel, the death, burial, and the resurrection can save you, he will save you today. You'll be born in a split second again. And your life will forever, ever change. You say, how could he possibly receive me? Because he was pierced through for your iniquity and for mine, and he loves you. But God has no other way of saving you but through the cross of his son. Now, our Holy Father, we thank you for these words that we've had a chance to study. May we not be those who just hear the word and don't obey. May we who have met you in salvation be compassionate this week with the folks that we will meet. May we carry the death of Christ as Paul did and around in his body, constantly being reminded of the need of salvation. Help someone here today, Father, who's unsure whether heaven is really the place that they will go. Thank you that you said salvation is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that someone else paid for this gift with his rich royal blood. Help someone today to come to Jesus, to say in simple childlike faith, Jesus, I am a sinner, but I thank you that you died in my place, that you took my punishment, and I receive you today is my Lord. Help someone, Father, to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Father, we are reminded today how fragile life is. Help us to realize the things that are really important. And we ask it in your holy name. Amen.